Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Walk. One week after the unthinkable atrocities inflicted by Hamas against Israeli civilians, the country is ready for war. Earlier today, I spoke with IDF spokesperson Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner. He revealed that the Israeli special forces have been conducting raids across the border that are still going on and that they believe 126 people have been taken hostage. Those secret special operations raids are continuing. There are special raids that are ongoing uh, in close proximity of the perimeter. Um, Indeed, they are targeted in trying to locate uh, bodies, perhaps of victims. Uh, There are still people that are unaccounted for as a result of the massacre. As concern grows about the possibility of a northern front opening in the war, the lieutenant colonel also had a warning for Hezbollah. There have been uh, skirmishes, including fatalities, even this morning as an uh, anti-tank-guided missiles have been fired at Israel um, and with fatalities this morning. So Hezbollah is definitely heating up the situation. I would recommend that Hezbollah look very closely how we are dismantling Hamas's government, leadership and operational capabilities. And they should be very cautious about crossing that threshold. How is Israel preparing for the ground offensive and the possibility of a wider regional war? Joining me now is Reserve Brigadier General Amir Avivi, chairman of the Israel Defense and Security Forum. He's a former IDF deputy commander of the Gaza Division. Thank you so much for joining us today, General. You're welcome. I know that Israel has been through tremendous trauma and is now preparing for a response. Can you take us through how the Israeli military is preparing to respond to these attacks from Hamas? Well, um, there is a government decision uh, that we have to really uh, achieve an unconditional surrender of Hamas in the Gaza Strip and strip Hamas completely from its capabilities and ability to govern the Gaza Strip. And for this, we are preparing for a ground operation. We have amassed all our forces that are relevant in the south. And in the coming days, we see a ground operation in Gaza. Can you tell me what uh, intelligence Israel has or believes in terms of what Hamas's capabilities might be? Because I, I know there's been a tremendous effort to try to gather more information. That intelligence before obviously wasn't accurate. What do you expect Israeli soldiers are going to encounter? Hamas is not a terror organization, it's a terror army. They are equipped with everything an army uh, has, uh, drones, anti-tank missiles, IEDs, uh, grenades, machine guns, uh, tunnels, uh, cyber. They have many capabilities. They have prepared the Gaza Strip as a fortress full of uh, tunnels and bunkers, and positions, and uh, we love to maneuver very aggressively with a lot of air force assistance and artillery and everything you need to do in war in order to secure soldiers and uh, manage to do the missions with minimum casualties. You were the former deputy commander for the Gaza Division, so I know it's, it's a place that you know very well. What would you anticipate the possible time frame is once Israeli troops start to move to, to take Gaza? So when you go on offensive, there are two stages. The first stage is the, the maneuver, which you usually do to centers of gravity, which the army needs to define where, where it wants to maneuver. And after you reach these points and deal with them, then really the hard part comes, and this is really cleaning the whole Gaza Strip 
from a terror presence destroying uh, all um, terrorist uh, infrastructure, tunnels, uh, rocket launchers, um, bunkers, headquarters. I can go for an hour or two talking about uh, missions. This takes months. This takes uh, months. It's not a short operation. And at the end of the day, the Gaza Strip needs to be a completely civilian area, no terror infrastructure at all in the Gaza Strip in the future. Would the Israeli military have the ability to, to hold the Gaza Strip if the Israeli government decided that they wanted to annex it? We have the ability and we have the needs. Uh, the IDF will have to maintain in the future complete freedom of operation in the whole Gaza Strip, just as we do in Judea and Samaria. We don't uh, rule uh, an everyday life in Jenin or in Nablus, but if there is a terror cell or terror infrastructure, then we go in, we apprehend, and we go out. And, and this is something we need to do also in Gaza if we want to really uh, provide security to, to the citizens of the South who are not going to go back to their homes if we don't assure them that we can secure them. What role do you believe that Iran has played in, in the build-up to these attacks um, and in the decisions about whether or not Hezbollah gets involved. I know there's been border skirmishes. We just heard from the IDF lieutenant colonel who talked about fatalities as a result of that. But how involved do you think Iran is in the actual decision-making of what will play out? It's all Iran. This is a war against Iran. Uh, Hamas and, and uh, Hezbollah are Iranian militias funded by Iran, equipped by Iran, guided by Iran, and, and Iran gives the orders. And, and Hamas cannot go to such an offensive war uh, without Iranian consent. And I, I think that the Iranian plan was to disrupt the buildup of a Western-Israeli-Sunni coalition as was about to happen through the normalization between Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the whole Sunni world. A, a, a basically an alliance that uh, was being built to counter the Russian-Iranian Chinese front. Does Israel have the ability to, uh, and I know I've, I've spoken with Israeli government sources who have said, uh, you're, you're assuming that there very well could be a multi-front war. You're hoping that there's not. I know in 2006 it was difficult, and of course it's difficult to hold more than one front at a time. Do you think the Israeli military is prepared to fight Hamas and Hezbollah at the same time? We are in full readiness. We have mobilized the whole uh, army and the whole country. We are ready as much as can a, a country can be ready. Everything is ready. Every, all the oil soldiers are trained, equipped, and already uh, deployed along the borders. On top of that... Uh, the U.S. that understands that this is a global war. This is not about Israel. This is about the West. This is about the Russian-Iranian front that, that is challenging the West. And this is why the U.S. is building war, bringing warships and getting involved and threatening Iran and the Hezbollah not to intervene and even showing willingness to fight. That's, this is a, a global war. Israel is just the catalyst of something much, much uh, bigger, and uh, we'll be ready. And I think the, uh, I'm not sure it's in the interest of Iran to uh, really uh, have Hezbollah involved, because then they will be defenseless. They count 
on uh, Hezbollah to, to really defend them. Without Hezbollah, Iran will be exposed, and they know that. You mentioned um, everyone's been talking about Iran, but in addition to that, uh, China and Russia. Can you tell us a bit about the role that you believe those two countries are, are playing in this? Well, I think that we, you know, talking about the Russian-Ukrainian war and, and the sanctions, the harsh sanctions that have been imposed on Russia and Iran, rightly so, this created a dynamic that you see the East getting closer and closer together. Russia, Iran, North Korea, all these countries have been very dependent on China and they're trying to build their own ecosystem. So the East and the South are building a, a force that is challenging the West. And I think that the West, especially the U.S., that it leads the West, are starting to understand that this is a huge challenge that needs some kind of alliance to balance the globe and, and stabilize the Middle East and other regions. And this is what we're seeing. The hostages are obviously a huge consideration in, in all of this and, and very difficult to find. Can you tell us how the Israeli military is calculating how do you carry out these operations, which could be devastating in an area where you know your, your own citizens may be being held? We must say that it's only, not only Israeli citizens. We have, there are many American citizens, many European citizens. And um, I think their best chance is a IDF offensive and us trying to really maneuver and find them and liberate them. Do you think the IDF might provide any humanitarian relief in this operation to the civilians of Gaza? Well, we're asking the civilians of Gaza to move south. In the south of Gaza, they'll be safer. Uh, we don't want uh, Palestinian civilians in a war zone involved. We'll try to minimize these casualties. The Hamas is doing everything it can to prevent them from moving south. It wants them assuming shields. He wants civilians to die. So he can blame Israel. So we are really um, doing everything we can to tell the civilians to go south. And if we were getting control of Gaza, of course, we'll also uh, deal with the relief and uh, all the humanitarian aspects uh, in this area. General, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. You're welcome. According to the United Nations, an estimated one million people have been displaced in Gaza this week as basic necessities like food, fuel and drinking water run out after Israel's complete siege of the area. We wanted to give you an idea of just how small this piece of land is where this extensive military campaign is expected to take place. For context, if you took Gaza, seen here in red, it would cover an area roughly the size of the island of Montreal. And for our Western viewers, it would cover a narrow strip the length of the city of Calgary. So what can be done for the civilians who are trapped in this tiny area? Joining me now to discuss this is Zaha Hassan, a human rights lawyer. She was the legal advisor to the Palestinian negotiating team during their bid for UN membership. Zaha, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's begin with what the situation is in Gaza. There, there are not a lot of Western journalists there. So the footage that we're getting out is, is very sporadic. We're not able to get a lot of reporting. I know that you are in touch with many contacts. Can you describe the situation for us? Yes, uh, thank you again for having me. This is a very somber day. Um, look, Gaza is a, uh, a strip of land, as you said, a very small strip of land where 
uh, 2.3 million people, most of whom are refugees or descendants of refugees from 1948 when Israel was established and it forced out three quarters of the Palestinian population from what became the state of Israel. So these folks have been sitting there for um, 75 years and their children and grandchildren now and great grandchildren. And um, since 1967, they've been living under a very uh, strict Israeli occupation that has uh, since the last 16 years become a complete blockade and siege of the Strip after Hamas, uh, the resistance movement took over the Strip uh, that year. And um, their movements uh, are completely controlled by Israel from birth to death. Israel controls everything, whether someone gets a birth certificate, a death certificate, an ID number as a resident of Gaza, all this is controlled by Israel. And um, the situation has been completely suffocating for the economy. As you might imagine, if there is a blockade, there's very uh, difficult economic uh, development that can happen in the Strip. And so this is the context in which we have, we're at this moment now where we have the Hamas resistance movement um, attacking Israel on October 7th, sorry, in a very brutal uh, uh, and despicable way um, involving the deaths of 1,300 Israelis. And now we're in the, this moment where Israel is lashing back um, uh, at Hamas, but also the civilian population of Gaza who have no uh, you know, have no ability to uh, uh, take care of themselves because they are in the Strip and they're dependent on international aid, um, which is now leaving the Strip because the UN is getting out of the way um, so that they can protect their own staff. So for, for me right now, this idea that, um, you know, uh, 1.1 million Palestinians have been told that they should evacuate uh, to to southern the southern part of Gaza is just crazy because this is a, this is an area of land where it's already blockaded. There's nowhere to go. Um, shelters are overrun. The Palestinians that are you know there's now tw over 2,300 that have been killed, almost 10,000 people that have been wounded in hospitals. There's only 2,500 beds, hospital beds in all of Gaza. And the biggest uh, hospital is in the north where people are being told to evacuate. The hospital bed there is 500, but it's overrun. Critical patients, people um, that have been wounded in this latest barrage, uh, babies in incubators, they're not able to move. They're not able to go anywhere. And even if you could transport 1.1 million people uh, out of that, that area, you're looking at... Um, uh, no food or water entering Gaza, as you noted. And so the idea for these people is where would we stay? Well, How would we get food and water? They would prefer to stay in their own houses and die in their own homes where they, at least they have some supplies, you know. So this is the situation Gaza finds itself in this morning. And, and on that, I think a lot of people are wondering, why is it that Egypt won't open the Rafah gate and, and allow civilians out and into Egypt? Because, yes, the Israelis are moving in. They say that they have given warning to try to allow people days to leave. They say the issue is Egypt, who, who won't let them out. Why is it that, that Egypt is, is not allowing them to come in? Look, Egypt has said that they are willing to open up a humanitarian corridor to, to bring in supplies and to take out 
critical patients to, to be treated in Egyptian hospitals. What they're not okay with doing is having um, the Palestinian population that lives in Gaza move into the Sinai and create um, a refugee camp in the Sinai for the 2.3 million people of Gaza. Now this, and, and Palestinians aren't keen for this either. Um, this is because the history, the Palestinian history is one of displacement and dispossession. Since 1948, as I said, where three quarters of the population was forced out of their homes to make way for the creation of the state of Israel. For, for Palestinians hearing about this evacuation, they understand it as a permanent evacuation and a permanent displacement, no different than 1948 when 750,000 Palestinians were forced out or 1967 when another 150,000 Palestinians were forced out of their homes during the Israeli occupation of the West Bank um, and Gaza. So there, this is not a solution for Palestinians and it's not a solution for Egypt, which is very uh, uh, you know, uh, concerned about its own territorial sovereignty. It fought wars with Israel to get back uh, the Sinai and it's not uh, willing to compromise its sovereignty to make way for a solution, what in their minds is a, a political solution for Israel by removing the Palestinians from Gaza. Is there support among the civilian population in Gaza for Hamas? You know, it remains to be seen what the feeling is uh, now for Hamas. Hamas ha was, not a pop was not popular before this uh, current attack. What tends to happen when um, the uh, Hamas resistance movement takes action against Israel to try to, um, you know, change the calculation of Israel's um, control over Palestinian life in Gaza, Palestinians in general are supportive of the idea of resistance. Whether they are pleased with uh, what's happening to them now is a different story. But the idea of resisting occupation, resisting siege and blockade is something that Palestinians have um, increasingly become supportive of. Why? Because negotiations, diplomacy has not worked for them in the decades and after uh, uh, the Palestinian uh, uh, national movement signed uh, an agreement with Israel towards creating a two-state solution. There have been no fruits to the diplomatic track. And so more and more resistance and even violent resistance is becoming uh, so something that people support. And now keep in mind, even um, legal means have been blocked by the international community for Palestinians to seek legal redress. Even access to the UN has been blocked, particularly by the United States. And so Palestinians who are suffering under structural violence that many legal experts describe as apartheid are, are fed up. They have no other means to express their um, displeasure with long-term, decades-long uh, oppression. And so now resistance is becoming more popular. Well, and I think that um, I, I hear what you're saying on, on resistance, and, and we've seen radicalization in other countries when there's marginalized populations. Th there's a difference between resistance and murdering children. I, I think this is a very different operation than we've seen in the past. Um, but I do want to ask just before we have to go, how much time do you think these Palestinian civilians have um, before the blockade starts to take a potentially devastating effect? Well, look, um, just to 
just to get to your point on the issue of uh, Palestinians and their support for resistance is one thing. Palestinians do not support, writ large, do not support attacking civilians. No, and under no circumstances. When I talk about resistance, support for resistance, I'm talking about support for confronting the structural violence that is occupation and apartheid. As for the Palestinians inside of Gaza and, and how much longer they can last under these circumstances, I, I really uh, don't know. We're looking at a mass, either mass atrocities right now or mass, mass ethnic cleansing. And it, we're watching it in real time. This is a very critical time. The international community has to ask for a ceasefire, demand a ceasefire, or we're gonna see a lot more Palestinians killed. Zaha, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back here next Sunday. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for The West Block.